begin our new season. And we want to first begin by clearing up a few loose ends left over from last year's learning before our break. First, we want a brief summary. For the past two years, we've been dealing with what I consider to be perhaps the most important area of learning, which is to try to understand, try to solve what we're calling Pshatosh Mikra. What is the Torah really telling us? Why is it so important? Obviously because that's the Son Hashem. We want to know what God wants or what Hashem wants of us. Whether it's in the ritual area or whether it's in the philosophical area, conceptually, whatever the case may be, we want to know what Hashem wants of us and Hashem's will is revealed in the Torah itself. So we have the obligation of reading a text and finding out what it means. Is that very simple? No, it's not very simple. Torah does not very clearly tell us what it, tells us what it means. And we've seen that on numerous occasions. And the most obvious of these cases is the fact that the Torah uses anthropomorphisms, attributing to God human characteristics, human emotions, which is known as anthropopathisms. So, is that what God really is about? Does God have physical attributes? If we would understand Torah literally, meaning whatever word, whatever the word says, what it actually means, then we have no problem whatsoever. <clears throat> but then we wouldn't have the Judaism that you have today, because then you would not be seething a goat to some other's milk, but you'd eating, be eating milk after meat. And when a Torah tells you, you, you put it literally between your eyes. That's what it says. Put it between your eyes. Between your eyes. What does it mean? Torah is not very easy in, prevent, in presenting us with a very clear statement as to what it really wants of us. Torah uses metaphors and images. Why is Torah using metaphors and images? Because it's more impactful to use an image of God's anger flailing nostrils, Haronach means flailing nostrils, then it is to simply say, God reacted negatively. God doesn't react negatively either, really, according to my Mandian formulation about what God's all about. Nevertheless, the, the images and metaphors are meant to massively shape a mass of people. In order to impact upon the world which was the Torah wants, you have to couch your truths, not as philosophical abstractions, but rather as real life narratives that are meant to be impactful. People are much more impacted upon, obviously, you know. Yes, well, they're, they're not truth. Literally, they're abstractions. Yes, correct. Torah will use the metaphor, in quotes, of Kain and Hevel to teach us about homicide. People are much more impacted by imagining. We're going back to the nature of the human being. By a person's use of imagination, by imagining a brother killing his other brother, rather than simply saying, he killed him. Or trust us, do not kill. That is an abstraction, has very little impact. If I conjure for you the image of a <clears throat> brother killing another brother, and I try to explain by what does it mean for the brother's blood to be screaming out from the ground, so it's saying, notice that personification of blood as human. We say, the brother, your brother's blood are screaming, plural. Why is it plural? Because that generation, all generations, are also cut off when you kill somebody. It's an extraordinary, brilliant text, kind of heaven. Whether it's true or not true, assuming it's not true, it's a metaphor or an image. It's what's going to shape the moral fiber of the people. Similarly, what I'm saying is so obvious that it just doesn't need to be confirmed, but the image of a mob stomping, tearing, lashing as two Israeli soldiers is what's going to shape the morality of the Israeli people in the next five years. People are not going to forget that image. It's ironic how the Italian crew filmed it and let it out did probably more time the peace process than even Arafat. 
Because if we just heard on the radio that they, that they killed an Israeli soldier, it's terrible, it's horrible. But nobody could be unaffected by what they saw. When Emily had seen it on CNN, she cried. She just broke down and she couldn't contain herself. I never saw her that, I don't think ever, had seen her that emotionally moved by seeing a, an, enraged, an enraged mob just destroying another human being with such ferocity, horrifying, subhuman, primitive, savage. But that image is what's going to create our response. I'm sorry? The blood on the hand. Right. And the joy in the blood on the hand. The glee. Horrifying. That's going to create the Israeli response. That's going to create the moral fiber, the moral character of those Israelis who have to deal with these people now. I'm sorry? I don't think there are any more left. Right. Nobody. Uh-huh. I don't think so. I haven't been reading that. Okay, could be. It could be. That's the right one who's saying that. Huh? Oh, the rough one saying that that was. That's the right one who's saying that. Let's believe. We predicted it. That what? That it shouldn't surprise you. This is what we said is going to be part of the process. And therefore, we make and it's actually happening. So we're right on this target. This is the fruits of not... Of not doing enough peace. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a problem. I mean, I don't, I'm not reading that at all. I'm saying also the opposite. Yeah, You're not going to affect 100% of the people in the same way. Right. Okay, good. But the, I think good. the point stands that the majority of the oh, people absolutely. are going to be affected by that. Right. In one way. By the image. So my point is that if you want to affect people, images count more than words, more than concepts, more than ideas. So that wants to affect generations of people in terms of this moral fiber, moral system, and has to do so. Even the image of Shebud Mitzrayim, oppression. Because you were oppressed, therefore don't oppress. Our morality is not based on philosophical concepts and abstractions. Our morality is based on the curious experience. Remember Egypt, Mesozoic Egypt, Tiflin Egypt, Kadesh Gobekhot Egypt, everything is Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. It appears more, more images appear about Egypt than it does about Pasteur Bereshit. Much more so. Ten times the amount. Why is that so? At least ten times the amount. Why is that so? Because we want to create the moral fiber based on the curious experience. You know what it's like to be a slave? Don't accept somebody else. If they get, why? So everything is based with metaphors, personification. Sorry? What is? It could be, could not necessarily have been. Not, you might be right, my, my point. Torah could have imaged image that differently rather than simply just saying seven days. However, that is portrayed. The key over here is to understand that Torah is a document of images, personifications. Even so simple of a text as Hashem telling Cain, La petach hatat rovets. Here you have La petach, by the door. Hatat, sin, rovet, crouches. We're personifying sin as a crouching animal. Belecha tshukato. It has designs upon you, desires for you. It's an extraordinary image. But, you can rule over that transgression, that sin. So, the image is that I walk outside my door and sin's going to leap upon me. How am I going to escape it? It wants me. It's going to tear me apart. 
So something as simple as that. So Torah is therefore not a simple text. It utilizes metaphors, images, personifications, stories, retelling of stories in order to create for you ultimately the ideal biblical Jew. Yosef, the image of Yosef, tearing himself away from the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife stays with you. And it's how you should act if God forbid you're ever in that situation. If you're in the Orient, you can picture yourself in the Orient and some Gisha girl comes in and wants to take hold of you, you're going to conjure up, if you're a good biblical Jew, the image of Yosef, you're going to leave your vest behind and you're going to run away. Right? That's what we're all going to do. Because Yosef plays a role in the shaping of our moral personalities. Good. So, with all of that, therefore, Torah is not a simple text. Torah is a very complex text, which has to be in order to shape the moral characteristics of thousands of generations over thousands of geographic miles. Because I'm not talking over here about Israel per se. We're going to America, going to Russia, going to South America, and you want us to try to serve that so that same role. So now, I wasn't there. My father was giving me over by Shalom to Mechanabit last night. They had a 15 minutes. So his talk was on how the way it's has been learned today, most of the Shivot, oh, terrible, not having that. Positive effect of course on not. the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible. 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 Where, where the, the, the laughableness of this is you have people who literally dropped out of Yeshiva High School, start doing Dafyomi, who can't read Hebrew. We become legalistic. All the Christians said about the worst about us is really true. You only care about the angel in the head of the pen as opposed to really caring about Torah as a spiritual energizing principle. It's a fantastic essay that I might have thought of for you, but probably I didn't to read by Rabbi Tversky called Law and Religion. Law is the external formalization of what should be religious feelings. You need to have an interplay between the law and the religious feelings you have. He speaks about how Talmudism, legalistic approach to Judaism, had taken over certain areas and then there's been a rebellion against that in terms of Kabbalah's rebellion against Talmudism. Talmudism. Pietism is rebellion against Talmudism. Spiritualization, or even in the latter part of the, midi- of the medieval period, Biblicism is a rebellion against Talmudism. Because to be a Talmudic Jew is religion in manifestation, not religion in essence. Manifestation is how it's expressed outwardly. And you need to have this dialectic tension between what we feel and how we express it. We're now living the crest of religion in manifestation, not religion in essence. And he shows how the Rambam came along to combat that. How even his Mishneh Torah is not pure legalistic. It is infused at zillions of places with psychology and philosophy and Mitzvot and Shikun Hamidot and all of that because he doesn't believe simply in legalism. He believes in that interplay between religion and essence, spirituality, and religion and manifestation. You cannot have one without the other and still be a viable religion. 
and we see that a natural corrective almost of Judaism, the Hasidic movement, for example, came along to rebel against the strict legalism of Lithuania of the 17th century. So did Kabbalah 200 years earlier, 300 years earlier than that, to rebel against strict legalisms. So, who is they? Well, it's not, it's not, it's not problems. What happens is that, it, well, it, it because it'll, yeah, okay, that. So you need to find that dialogue attention. Chovot Levavot is exactly a rebellion against the Talmudism of that century, of the 11th century. He says you have to have what's in your heart. What's Chovot Levavot? Your heart can't. It's not what you do outside. People keep writing books about what to do, 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 do. What about what you have to feel, 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 feel? And then he writes a whole book called Levavot, which is a classic religious work based on that. Much influenced by the Sufi mystics, which is interesting. His model of the pious person was a Sufi mystic, as was the case of Rabbi Avraham Ben Hanabam 200 years later, 200 years later. And he says, you want to know who's really the pious people nowadays? The Sufi mystics. They are the inheritors of the prophetic mantle of Eliyahu and Elisha, which is probably true. They did, the Sufi mystics did look to Eliyahu and Elisha as their models, because they had no... To, to what? Eliyahu and Avi and Elisha. Because they, in the 8th century, when the Sufi mystics first were formed as rebellion against the luxurious standards of living of Omar II and others in the 8th century. And they said, this is not what, what Islam is all about. It's, it's, it's poverty, it's, it's supposed to be spirituality, it's supposed to be giving charity. You're living like a king. He was the king, Omar, he was the sultan. So they didn't like, they rebelled against that, left the society, and they rebelled. But they had no literature which, upon which to base themselves. So having seen the Torah as divine, Right? They view the Torah as divine, though mezuyaf, though forged, because the Torah chooses Isaac over Ishmael. But still, no, they look at Eliyahu and Shah as their models. Good. So that's the model of piety. Egypt of the 13th century, when Rabbi Abraham and Rabbi lived, is an exact replica of the Syrian community, I believe, of the 1960s and 70s. It's an obvious point. Sharetzion religion, which is religion Lumada, not too serious. Let's sit comfortably on our chairs. Rabbi gives a speech, but we walk out. If he sits too long, we make a minyan in the hallway because we're not happy with what he's saying. Limited rabbinic power. Going to the concord when you want to go to the concord. Eating out what you want to eat out and not being too serious about it. But we, we are religious people. We come to your people. We are religious people. It's exactly what the Rambam and Ibn Abraham complain about in their work. Religion and manifestation, not true piety or true spirituality. And of course... The result of that is what? Chaim Yosef Rafal, 1980, starting a truly pious movement. The result of that is, is Rabbi Abraham starting a truly pious movement. Because they want true, inner, essential religion as opposed to the external manifestation of it. But what happened 20 years later? Chaim Yosef's movement as well became fossilized, Talmudized, and now they have lost their inner piety and spirituality to now formally wear black hats, wear black coats, grow a beard, and study, you know, five, six, seven hours a day, and that became your religion, losing against that energy, the motivation, the dynamism that originally motivated it. Because you need to have an interplay of both, and he doesn't have to do both. So that was the problem with that. Back to this. So we have a very complex text over here that doesn't really mean always what it says. So now, our obligation is to understand what is the Torah Hashem, what does God really want of us? That is what we've been calling Peshat. So now... We've tried to study Pshat both practically and theoretically. Practically meaning we've seen biblical texts and raised the right questions. 
and theoretically saying, what does Pshat really mean? What does the Dash really mean? We want to know, what does the text say, number one. We want to know, what do others say the text says, number two. Number three, we also want to know, how are others reading into the text, which we're calling Dirash, which they may be calling Pshat. The commentaries. Themselves. Themselves. We may come up with our view what the text is really saying, and then we may read a commentary, and he says the text is saying X. Now, our question then is twofold. Is his X in agreement with us that that's really a Dirash? He says, you know something, I'm really giving you a Dirash. Or is he raising that's a Pshat? Or more concretely, let's look, make reference to what we had said on um, and studied last year. Who was Nahor according to the Pshat of the text? Was he righteous? Was he evil? Right? What does our text say? A. Literally. B. Do I have the right as an interpreter of the biblical text? Thank you. Thank you. The word is very healthy for you. I think you really should drink... You didn't drink eight cups today. Yeah, eight, 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 That's what we do. You have to do that. Well, we try. But I'm in. I have five. Six, but should I have eight? So... You've been doing it now for how long? Uh, a year, off and on. Not, not, not enough, but I should be doing it more. I'm important. Clean the whole system. With all the bombs that I take, you need it. Okay, so now, first question is, do we have a right to go beyond the literal message of the text? When I say pshat, text says X. But I can glean from the backdrop of the text more than the X of the text. You may be a strict constructionist. Rashban was a strict construction, constructionist. What the text says and what the text is. Not always true. He can't always be true that way. Because the text does in fact say, Arim lord of Surat Adla Shamayim. Now that says the cities are fortified and built up to the heavens. Is that literally true? Nobody can be a literal Jew. But he tried, halakhically, to be as literal as he could. Ashban, grandson of Rashi, contemporary of Ibn Right? Okay. So now, do we want to agree then that your Peshat understanding of Nahor, let's say, is not only what the text says, but we have a right to use grammar, philology, context, that which is contiguous and make a connection as, as to describing who Nahor really was. We did it. You were comfortable with it. How did we do it? We did it by saying Nahor is born over here and, and so that describes him over here. However, people who came later were in the same place, namely Iraq, Babel, built the... Nimrod. Do I say... I'm sorry, Nimrod. I'm sorry, Nimrod. I apologize. Nimrod. For the tapes purposes. For tapes, for your purposes. <laughs> yes, confused, right. Sometimes I do want to confuse them, but not this time. I saw yesterday. Which cousin? Oh, yeah, I was there. I mean, uh, I did a funeral, did the burial. Really? Last Sunday. Yeah, Sunday, uh, we couldn't do it. I mean, we did it Monday. Graveside service. Yeah, they didn't want to think that you can't do it in space. We didn't. In Neptune.
to this. So we're talking about Nimrod, and was he righteous, was he evil? What does it mean to study text literally? We're not going to do it only literally, because we agree that, that we, could, uh, we could analogize <coughs> to different other texts. We agree that we could see text contiguous, and what's true over here in Pedic, whatever he appears first, and Pedic Tet, where you talk about Dal Bavel, wherever it may be, we, Yud Aleph, I'm sorry, Yud Aleph, Sefahat, that is the same personality. So he's involved and responsible for the Migdal Bavel that Hashem was very angry at. So if that's the Peshat, okay, if that's what we're going to say, then we want to say, what do others say about him? And were the others reading into the text or not? And if they were reading into the text, why were they doing so? Was there a need? Let's assume that the Rashidah, whoever it may be, we saw everybody read the text, is a very evil person. We found that not that evil, and Ibn Ezra was very positive about him, based on the textual reading of it, good, but why would they be so negative? <coughs> well, was there a message in that? Are they really responding to the prototype Babylonian? Right? You're living in Bavel. You're reacting to Bavel. You're seeing Zoroastrians emerge from Bavel. Do I want to have a negative message about the Bavlim? <coughs> is that part of my motivation? Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. Or maybe I just see the text as shot. He's a negative guy. As opposed to me reading into it. Maybe we think they're reading into it. Maybe they're not. So all those are the questions of shot and Dadash of a text. Furthermore, of course, we then have to raise the question bringing you up to date, what really is the shot of the text, in quotes? What the text says literally, or what we can glean from the text, or can there be two equally true Peshat of the text? Is that possible? You're saying the text means X, I'm saying it means Y, and they're both true. Are we comfortable with that? Or is there only one shot meaning? What does the word shot really mean? Is part of what we have tried to deal with. <clears throat> that's a different point that's saying though it's not the same shot we still could see both interpretations as legitimate expressions of the divine will though it's not two shot I'm asking a much tougher question can something be both X and non X at the same time the answer is no it cannot be that's exactly my point it's factual it cannot messages but I don't think they could be Tupshat. mutually exclusive. In other words, they, you can't say... There can be two messages, and they must be mutually exclusive. No, no, no. I'm saying you can have two messages as long as they're... Are they Pshat? Yeah. You can't say he's an evil, evil guy or he's a great guy. That okay, that's, what, that's my question. That can't be the case. He's either A or B. But he, he can... He he's kind of nice, he's kind of bad. He could. Yeah, we know we can't he shade has, it. His grade there. But then he's not two gray messages. Good. Then, 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 he's, then it's black and white. Good. Then that's the shot is that he's a great personality and he's certainly not evil. Mm-hmm. Also not righteous. He's a great personality. Your shot of this man is that he's a great personality. I'm going to give the example of Esau in a second. So give me a minute and then we'll see how that passes into that. Good. Now, let's look for a moment at Esau in the eyes of the shot, thank you. I need eight now because you made me. Here, here, right here. Here's good. What? What? Here. This is fine. What's the issue? No, no, no. Okay. Okay. Let's look at Esav. Esav, in the eyes of Hazal, is reflective. Thank you. Of whom? Edom. Edom. Esav is Edom, but who's that reflective of? Rome. Rome, who's Rafam reflective of? Reflective of? The bad guy. Who's the bad guy? 
Christianity. In the eyes of Chazal, Edom Esav is reflective of Christianity. Now, see here, oh. it's not a, it's not an Imlod story because I, I think it's, it's. Uh, what do you mean here? Where? Yeah, where, exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, what, what do you mean? Where? I'm saying the our uh, interpretive tradition that the word um, on Esav is pretty unanimous on. Okay, well, <laughs> my opinion. No, um, you didn't do the research. So right, you should have my research. So you shouldn't have an opinion. Just, uh, Why do you have an opinion? You didn't do research. Off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, I have an off the cuff thing. No. Shooting from the hip. Shooting from the hip, it's a lot more uh, unanimous on its side. Okay. I don't think it's appropriate to say that. Well, we're not going to do that now, but I just want to raise it as a point. I'm sorry? Who's the blame for Christianity? What does that say to me? Nobody in among the traditional commentaries blamed Judaism for Christianity. Because they chose of their own free will to go off the beaten path. Well, they're all Jew- what, they at, what are you driving at? Yeah, what do I... I don't... <laughs> are the ones who gave birth to Christianity? You said what? So you're saying... No, we agree, but hold on to that for a second. Hold on, to that. let's just let me develop who this Edom business is. So now, of course, when we look at Esav, since he's viewed by Chazal through the eyes of Christianity, right? He is reflective of Christianity. How did that happen? It's an, it's an important essay that Gershom Cohen wrote about thirty or forty years ago. How the association between Esav, Edom, that's Pashut, that's from the text. Edom, Christianity. Where did that come from? Edom, Rome. Rome was based on what myth? How did Rome become Rome? In the 6th century, 7th century before the Common Era, Rome was an abandoned child, Romulus, which was, who was nurtured, sucked, nurtured by the wolves, the red wolves. Hence, the Rome redness became associated with Rome and Edom is Rome and then eventually Christianity became the Holy Roman religion so then Edom became Christianity. Did you still like follow that association? Good. So now Chazal have a metaphor for the evil of Christianity in the guise of Esau of Rome. So therefore, now everything Esau does is going to be viewed, painted negatively and as a completely evil kind of a person. Right? We all see that. Absolutely. Right? So now, interesting question would be, the rabbis may or may not have had an awareness of the reason, the backdrop, as to why they saw Esav as so evil. Meaning, when they said Esav something that's evil, is that because they want to portray Christianity as evil? Or is that because they simply... So the text of him is evil. Were they aware of the reason that they're portraying Esav as evil? Or did they simply see Christianity is evil, he comes from an evil ancestor, namely Esav, so it all makes sense, and therefore their tradition of Esav as evil is a shot. They're not reading into it because they want to portray to the Jewish people at that time an evil Christian. For example, open up to Bereshit Kafir, please, 25. 
Pesuk Kaftet 25-29 What's the famous Rashi on this Pasuk? No, after that. Oh. Yeah. Kaftet. 25-29, right? Okay, now look at this context. Here we have this statement. I'm trying to find the exact statement. Right. Right, exactly. Right. Right, exactly. Now that's in the Midrash, right? I believe we find it. <coughs> he does, yeah. It should be in the Targum. Now look at look at Targum Yotam ben Uziel, right? In Pasuk Kaftet, Targum Yotam ben Uziel, Pasuk Kaftet, right? You with me now? Mm-hmm. And that's an early midrash. Really, Targum Yotam was not Yotam ben Uziel. It was originally a Taf Yud, which was Targum Yerushalmi. It's Targum Yerushalmi. They thought it was Yotam ben Uziel, but it's not Targum Yerushalmi. It's Targum Yerushalmi, right? So that's what we should be aware of that. So it's not Yotam ben Uziel, but Targum Yerushalmi, which is an early t- midrash. Read with me, please. That day, to meet Abraham, Abraham had passed away. Midrash or Pshat? You don't know. Okay, hold on to it. What's, what, why would you say it's Midrash? Because he's reading into it. Who said Abraham passed away that day? What's the, what's the contextual reason why he provides for it? Why is the, other, why is the rich man's son cooking lentils? So that, who said lentils are the food of Avelim? That's what we say. But who said it? He would say that. Okay, good. Well, in any case. And he went to comfort his father, right, Yitzchak. And came from outside. And that day he just had finished. Five transgressions did on that day, right? Right? He spilled blood. And he had sex with a engaged girl. And he denied the world to come. And he also trivialized the Bechorah. He did five terrible things. What a day. What a day. Right? Did that really happen? Did Chazal know who made that point? Think that it really happened? No. Or is that they're reading into it intentionally to show us how horrifyingly evil the founder of Christianity actually was? Now that she has who ayev, but it's ha, he murdered. That she sees him that he that he that he murdered. Did he really murder? But your Shalmi was when? Shalmi is probably the third century after the Common Era. Second to third century after the Common Era. So already when did Christianity start coming to power? Wasn't a big thing at that point, right? <coughs> Christianity became, of course, exactly at that point in 350 at the Council of Nicaea. In 350 after the Common Era, it became the Constantine became the Holy Roman and Emperor. Shalmi was when? Around that time. Third, fourth century. You know exactly because we have a tradition going backwards. Now we didn't look at Kugel's book yet on this topic, and we would want to see whether or not this is the first comment about Isav is negative. In other words, once Christianity begins and becomes a threat to Judaism, now Christianity was a threat to Judaism 200 years earlier, 
when they were still trying to separate from the parent religion. So at that point, the Chazal said, you know, these people really stink. Let's get rid of them. Let's throw them out. So it could have been the 4th century. It could have been even earlier. So we'd like to see the earlier Kugelian uh, quotations of early Midrashim and see what they say with this Pasuk. I'd like to bet, which I didn't look up, that you don't find any early Midrashim, early, early pre-Christianity, that's even Islam is so negative. Which is why I reacted so strongly against your statement that Islam is always viewed as a negative. He's not, maybe he's not always viewed as negative. Post- I mean, I always, I mean, in this, in this commuter time period. Okay, that's a, oh, good. So that doesn't mean he's always viewed as negative, though. What does that, the Navi say about Islam and Edom? Where is that? Islam and Edom is, is no, no, but, biblical text. But there's a poetic, it's been one of a half that ought. In Ovadiah, the Navi Ovadiah speaks about Esav, who is Edom. Navi Ovadiah. Yeah, but not in, in not, the, not good terms. No, negative terms, horrible yeah. terms, evil terms. Yeah, as well in Amos, as well in Amos. And the question is how you see Edom, Esav, post Christianity and pre Christianity. They're talking about the real Edom. Right. That's in the eighth century before the Covenant era. We're talking about after that Edom was already gone from the scene. Right. right. So I'm saying, so there was a tradition prior of mm-hmm. Rome and Esau. Not of Rome. Rome is, is post Nevi'im. Rome is 7th century. Mm-hmm. This is pre. Obadiah is pre. Amos is pre. They're all pre. Uh-huh. Okay. So now that Ashir who are Yefi was tied from killing. He's the murderer. How do we know that? Of course, Pasuk Yemi Yemiyah. Does Ashir think they really murdered that day or not? Here's the Pasuk. The word ayef means he's, he's a murderer. Right? Because you're supposed to be in which says that my soul is tired from murdering. So when you're supposed to tell me who ayef, tells me that he's tired means he murdered somebody. You're not tired just strolling in the fields. When you murder, you get tired. So now, is Rashi saying that midrashically or api pashotosh mikra? I think that she means just Clearly, that she means this to be the Peshat of the Pasuk. Right. So that she quotes. As she told you a hundred times, I've only come along to speak the Peshat of the text. Yeah, Unless I otherwise tell you so. Always he quotes that she. He sees this as Peshat, I would say. Pretty obvious to me at that, that point. Right? Contextually, he'd have to look at every other idea. No, in this particular case, it seems he, it's the context is, the kind of personality he is. And he's used Peshat as very large. So the other the kind of personality that this man is, is one that he probably would have murdered that day. And raped and everything else that he did. Okay, so now, <clears throat> this is a good text for us to look at, not extensively because I don't have time for that right now, but just to see what is the Peshat that we're viewing it as. We clearly do not see Esav as having murdered that day, or anything else that Gomer Tzadim and did. We agree with that, right? We all think that that's clearly a midrash that they're reading into in order to paint this person as evil because he's now associated with Christianity and we want our people to know that Christianity is evil. We don't want our people to assimilate with Christians. At a certain point in time when Christianity became dominant, Jews may have been tempted to convert or to assimilate or become part of that. No, they're evil. You cannot do so. To the same degree that our community will paint converts as evil people. Charles Sacker believes they're all evil people. <laughs> Check that. I didn't mean to say that. Sorry. But it, no, it's true. That, in other words, we, we've succeeded in blacklisting all converts. 
even good converts, all converts, that it would be horrifying to seven people in this community to really to get to marry a convert. Not because of social political issues, but because they've been transformed into, the, uh, they can't be trusted, they're evil, they're horrible, you can't look at them, there's a stigma to that, right? All that you have. So we've, my point over here is to show that that's what the rabbis want to do with the Christians. Makes perfect sense how to do that. Let me go on for a second. So, now the rabbis must have been aware, the rabbis must have been aware that they were reading into the text all of those evil qualities of Esav. Not because they believed it to be true about Esav, per so, per se, but because they want to vilify Christianity. Why vilify Christianity? Obviously, keep Jews away from assimilating or converting into a Roman Christian society. So that we have. Now, but I can't say that with any degree of definiteness. Is it sure, for sure the rabbis are reading into it? They know they're reading into it? We know they're reading into it. Do they know they're reading into it? We're not 100% sure of that. When we... We think so. I would want to believe so. Because... Because it makes them more aware as to the process of interpretation. And we'll come back to this point. In other words, it is true that not every rabbi does know the difference, but anybody who's sophisticated in reading biblical texts, and I certainly do when I read and I speak, I know when I'm majrashicizing, I know when I'm doing shot, I know when I'm doing, I'm not really quite sure. Some texts, you're not really sure. Israel was Salvation's interpretation of Bereshit Anaf and Bet, as portrayed in the Lonely Man of Faith. It's a great exercise in shot analysis is he reading into it or is it really there if it's really there he's the first person in 4,000 years to have seen that shot brilliantly so first person in 4,000 years to come to this new interpretation and it's really there all the time nobody ever saw it before extraordinary unless you tell me it's Dirash Dirash then you will have Dirash and fine and you're not going to be able to answer that because he does such an extraordinarily good job of reading texts he's so precise so brilliant that you will be convinced that that is the shot. As you were convinced, you weren't here, I don't believe, that his tape, which is a completely radical new interpretation of Pashat Techa, I think it was. Do you hear that time? We left early. A couple hours. He early, right. Right. Sorry. Sorry. So, in that case, in that case, yeah, I noticed. In that case, what happens over there at that point? What happens? He took a whole new idea and he, you said, wow, this is the shot, this is what really is going on. Nobody ever explained it quite that way. So, anybody who knows how to read text should be sensitive to what he's doing. Either pshat, drash, or not 100% sure. Often I will say things that, that are new, that I believe. The way I understand Elkanah and Ali and Shemuel Aleph, nobody says, and yet I think it's the pshat of that text. We're not going to go into it right now. Similarly, the way I understood Shemuel Bet, Perek Zion, which we did a little bit uh, with Ronnie's Kostatilim over the summer, it was an ex- it's an extraordinarily insightful interpretation of that chapter. Nobody ever said it before, but I believe it's correct. The word HaMelech, the Melech, when David wants to build my dash, right, remember that? You were there, I think. Anokhi Shabbat Arazim. It's my interpretation of it. Right. It's my interpretation of that chapter of Shemuel Ben. Nobody, nobody else ever said it before. Nobody else sees it that way. But it's clear to me the shot of the text. The reader was arrogant in trying to build up Shash, saying, That's inappropriate. 
So my interpretation, which is again singular, which I think is correct based on a close reading of the text. So one should be aware. But am I going to bet my life on it? No, maybe I'm wrong. But one can read text very closely, come with a new shot what it really means. So now, in our text over here, We've raised the questions already. Is this the shot of the text? What Ashi says, what Turgum says? Or are they reading into it? What do they think they're doing is part of my question. What we think they're doing, what do they think they're doing? I am willing to guarantee you that Ashi thought that Asav really in fact committed murder that day and therefore it says that he was a murderer. Did Chazal think that this is the shot? Or were Chazal engaged in Drash, where they knew that it was Drash, are the questions that we're asking. Now, the preliminary question that we have to ask over here, what really is their understanding of the word Peshat? We're using an undefined term. It's very important to define the terms at the outset. What does the word Peshat really mean? And then one can ask the question, how does one come to the Peshat of the text? From Peshat text, I am seeing as the Son Hashem. And today, nowadays, one of the points of Peshat is making is that the only people who really engage in the Peshat text are the academicians who are studying the, the, the Bible, the Torah, academically. They want to know what the Torah really says. So the Nachum Sarners and the uh, Yaakov Elmans, let's say, and the um, Tigay and, let's say, Brevish Childs, all these people are trying to say, what does this mean? And what they say it means, that's the best evidence, archaeological, historical, philological, grammatical, contextual, after 50 years of close reading of texts, and they say this is what it seems to mean by virtue of convergent lines of evidence, then let's believe it. Now, if we're going to believe that, that might produce a very different religion than Talmud of Judaism. If Mamzer and their view is, let's say, a castrated pagan person who crashed himself to do Avrazarah for paganism, which is what we had read two years ago, if that's what it means, Mamzer, then that's a whole different story than the proper relationship. Now, I'm certainly not willing to go on that limb and say that. Although, I do think that these... Only one of the places the Chalev is up here, and that's the only way we can interpret it. It's in that context. Somebody who has uh, 
is sexually mutilated. What does it mean? Does it mean Talmudically? Or what it meant something else thousands years ago? And one can equally raise the question, is the Talmudic view what binds us, even if it's not the original biblical view? The very, very serious questions about Pshat. Very serious questions. Mordechai Breuer, who was a traditional person, a very from traditional person, yet has a very serious PhD, has a lot to say about the dangers of a Pshat reading of the text. Literal dangers. You can destroy all of Judaism by just something that's like going to a Pshat level. We're going to come back to him, um, his view of it. He's at Hebrew University. He teaches, he teaches at a number of different places. At um, some yeshivot. I think at Rabbi Tal, at maybe um, Michala, or at or at Bravin, there's one of those places. And I mentioned the story to you that in 1980, I took a course with Moshe Goshen Gottstein, who was perhaps the best biblical scholar, textual scholar in the world at the time. Brilliant man. Discoverer of the um, Aleppo Codex. That was the Ramah's manuscript. Wrote a lot of stuff. Extraordinary story. From Guy, extraordinary story. And he gave him his PhD. He said, but I, said to us, I don't trust him. He's too religious to be a good scholar. Because he, he, was, he was a good scholar, but you couldn't really trust him. So he said, I don't really, I'm, I'm concerned about him. I don't know if I want to give him this 20 years ago. Give him the PhD. Because is he really committed to truth or to Frumkai? It's two different worlds in a view of a scholar. To say the Torah's text we have over here is what they had over there is what every scholar will tell you. We know it to be the case. I'll give you five examples of that right now. Ketua Daka. How you spell the word Daka? You have different manuscript traditions about it. And was it? Dividing 23, 2, I think it is. Something like that. That's one example. Do we ever study that? And she says, Oh, it's without a vav because it's like a kala. It was a wonderful day. Kala, kafla, medher. It was a beautiful day. But it has a vav in it. And if you go through the articles in this thing, you'll find 20 other manuscripts, some with, and some without. And she had a legitimate reading. Legitimate reading, because had 10 other manuscripts, and the Vashim, they had it without a vav. But our text has a vav. The Torah has it. So what was the true Torah text? Nobody knows. So it's obvious that those who engage in the study of text are not going to come to the conclusion that the Torah that we have is exactly letter for letter. Besides the Malay and Hasid, but other cases as well, Serach Vadashir, Heisel Serach, Sin or Samech, different traditions. Yemenites in the Torah don't have the same exact Torah that we have. Yemenites, special Yemenite. There's going to be more authentic than ours. So we don't have the same exact text. Okay, does that shouldn't bother you because we're rabbinic Jews and we go by the rabbis, etc. So those are all side questions that one wants to think about. So, <clears throat> We do want to understand what the word Peshat means before we actually use it. We've studied it a bit. If Peshat means only what the text says, I'll ask you the question, does the text always mean what it says? The answer is no, because it has metaphors and because it has anthropomorphisms. So, of course, it does not mean what it says all the time. Right? Now, we've defined terms like Peshat Darash, number one, according to Uriel Simon, and he likes to get away with the statement that Peshat, Peshat is the objective meaning. Dirash is what you bring into the text. Simple. And as well, we had seen Siegel's view. A little blue book. I just finished. 
They really finished on time. I can't believe it. They probably want to proud to eat now. They, they're going to. I mean, I guess they are. Yeah. I, didn't, I prayed already. So they had said what it means. But we also want to look at other possible interpretations of what the word Peshat means. There's three other interpretations that we want to look at. We shouldn't step, uh, step aside and allow Simone to simply tell us what his Peshat is. I don't know if you read the article or not, but it's, we had done it. Yeah. We had done it. So it's an important article to read and reread to understand it. Right? So, they're just talking. So what I want to do now, we'll finish right now, but I want to look at, again briefly at Simone. That will go, do. Then we want to do Brother's Child. Brother's Child is a very firm Christian Bible scholar. From? He's a firm person. Right. Oh, I didn't, did I say that? He's very firm. You're right. He's very, he's a from, yeah. uh, he's at one of the seminaries, one of the Borough Park seminaries, sorry? Yes, 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 he's a very top person. Katan, correct, yes, right. And then we also want to look at Halibni Weiss understanding the word Peshat, because he's a Talmudist, he's a Talmudist. It's his view of Peshat different than the others. So here you, and then we want to look at also at um, the Peshat of Menachem Breuer, because he's a traditionalist, but he's an academician. Yes, good. And we could also even look at Mordechai. Mordechai, what I said? And then we also want to look at Menachem Kasher. Kasher wrote Torah Shilema, the most important Midrashic work in the last 50 years, bringing all Midrashim. His extensive article, his extended article on what the word Peshat means. So we want to know what he means by the word Peshat as well. And you'll find that all these disagree. No, no, just as an example. Baruch Hazarim, thank you. Yes, originally.